On this episode of the Big O Podcast, I'm joined by the founder of Hoops Canada, assistant coach for the champion Ryerson Rams and Edmonton Stingers of the CEBL, Jay Holness. We talk about the importance of building community with our kids and youth, the impact that Kobe Bryant and Chadwick Boseman had in their respective fields, how sports psychology has gone from an in-the-shadows topic to an essential tool in professional sports, and why this global pandemic is the ultimate glass-half-empty, half-full scenario. This is the Big O Podcast. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Big O Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Ortiz. And today I am joined by what I want to call a close friend. Prior to this podcast starting off, there was this major revelation of similar interest in sports teams. But I am joined by the founder of Hoops Canada, uh, Mr. Jay Holness. Jay, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. I'm just happy to be a part of the show. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Listen, we've. Uh, I was actually talking to your to uh, Chosette, Miss J, uh, about trying to have her come on a, a few months ago because I really wanted to change the dynamic. I had a lot of male guests at the time, uh, and it, our schedules just didn't sort of uh, link up. But then, you know, she reached out to me um, maybe about a week or two weeks ago and said, "Listen." I can't do it, but let me get the hubby on here because he'll talk sports with you. And little did I know that it would spawn this great sort of conversation that we've been able to go sort of back and forth with. And I'm really excited. I'm not going to lie. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, There's definitely a lot of things that I'd like to bounce off of you and get your opinion on um, just because of of your background, uh, your schooling, your experience in coaching. We worked for the similar uh, employer at one point. So, I mean, a little bit of a different generation, which is kind of nice because it's a little bit different now. But uh, I definitely think that, you know, there's a lot to unpack here. And I just want to sort of like get right into it. Same thing. Those are my favorite words. Let's jump into it. <laughs> yeah, that perfect. That's what I like to hear. So, one thing that I did, you know, in, in doing a little bit of research on you, you know, Hoops Canada was the first thing that sort of popped out at me. And the first time it sort of came out to me was when you actually did an Instagram live video with Chosette, which I think was talking about like the balance of relationships and right. hearing the perspectives of both you and Miss J, it's very, they're very similar. I mean, she has 17 different things going on. You have like 18 different things go on. I mean, trying to connect with you, you're like, listen, I can't do these two days. I'm finishing up renovating a house. I got dry land training. I've got, you know, all of these things going on. And at the same time, you know, you have this great, healthy relationship with your wife and you have young kids. How do you balance what is what I call a juggling act with all the things that you do? both doing the same thing. So it's not hard to, to coordinate. So, you know, it's easy for me to pass the ball to her and she runs with it and for a slam dunk and she throws me the alley-oop or I play defense. So we're, we're, we can bounce off each other very, very well. So it's created a great dynamic. Our kids are used to it. 
and our kids are developed the same thing. So my older son is going to be 16 in, wow. in January and the young one is going to be 13. So we're having preteens. Um, so they've been able to be around it all their lives. So it's easy for them to say, okay, dad is away for two weeks or dad's away for a month. Mom's going to take us. Mom's away for two weeks. Dad's going to take us. All right. So right. we've gotten really, really used to us um, just having this balance between each other and know that we're going to be busy at all times. <laughs> Now, it's an interesting analogy. I mean, obviously, with Hoops Canada, there's a little bit of a basketball background there. Um, But if I had to ask you then, you know, you made the reference, assist, alley-oop, dunk, Mm -hmm. playmaking. If you had to describe you and Miss J as a power duo in the NBA, now, it could be current day, could be back in the day, what would be the best duo to describe the relationship and coordination that you guys have together? You know what? I'm not a LeBron fan, but I think <laughs> that's blasphemous for our team, man. What are you talking about? I know, I know, I know. It's t- it's a tough one. I'm a Laker fan, but not a LeBron fan. People are confused when I say that. But it would have been uh, LeBron and D Wade because okay. I was a huge D Wade fan before he teamed up with LeBron. You know, like right. I loved to I loved watching Shaq and 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 D Wade win that championship in Miami, uh, but. To see LeBron and D-Wade go at it, I, I became a fan of that duel. Right. Because they were both, you know, animals who can go get it. And they knew when to take the reins and when to hell back. So LeBron knew when to let D-Wade go after it. Um, D-Wade knew when to let LeBron go after it. And they would both come back and try to guard the best players on the other team. So they're both two, they, they were both two-way players in that era in my book because they had to play defense on the other guy. For sure. Because otherwise I- both of them couldn't be on the floor. <laughs> Well, that, that's true. And I mean, Pat Riley had that expectation of them too, putting them together, right? I mean, him, Chris Bosh, I mean, those three players came from the same draft. Um, and, and looking at that draft year, it's just incredible, right? It's they, they accomplished a lot. And sure, they got a lot of flack for sort of teaming up. But bringing this back to a relationship, mm-hmm. you know, you need to find yourself a good partner in order to have success. Uh, 100%. <laughs> right? I mean, like you need to surround yourself and be around people who have the same agenda, who want the same things. And it's very similar to, like we said, like a relationship. And, and that's the thing. When you have so many things going on in different aspects and in the same universe, you know, there needs to be balance, right? Like you said, you pick up when mom's away, when you're away, mom picks up things. The kids just sort of know what's going on. And speaking of, you know, you being away, now we're going to get into a little bit of like your credentials a little mm-hmm. bit. You start Hoops Canada. You also were an assistant coach at Ryerson. Is that correct? Correct. That's 100%. So you're working with Ryerson, which means at that time you're probably going to play other teams inside of – Ontario and probably Canada. Um, You're also, you were also an assistant coach for the Edmonton Stingers. Correct. With the CEBL. Uh, Just recently this summer series for the summer series. So what is the CEBL? So the CEBL is a Canadian elite basketball league. Um, Okay. It started, this was the second year. Um, Because of COVID, they, they couldn't have their regular season. So they decided to have a summer series. Right. Um, this was out in St. Catharines. So we were quarantined out in St. Catharines for about, I would say, six weeks um, okay. from preseason to a small preseason where we had a chance to get our guys together, practice, and then jump into an eight-game season. 
Um, wow. and, and then championship, really. So we were able to, to put it all together, bring guys together. Our head coach did a great job of bringing guys back who were on the team last year. Uh, that way we had some cohesion uh, and, and some chemistry, much better than the other teams who just brought um, guys who they can get were available at that time. So right. great experience, great league. Uh, what I like about the league is that it's 70, I would say 70% Canadian talent. Uh, wow. Versus, you know, the NBL where the NBL is, you know, more Cana- more Americans than Canadians. So right. um, it's great that we have our guys, guys we coach, we coach in high school, guys we've coached uh, on national team, Ontario team, and now we're coaching them in the pros. I had a DKP, Peter McNeely, who I won an OUA championship at Ryerson, and now, oh, wow. <laughs> now, now a CBL championship um, in, in St. Catharines. So to have those connections, it's just incredible yeah. to, to, to connect those things with that league. Well, especially when you talk about, like, you know, you have an eight-game season, and if other teams are just pulling whomever they can get, it definitely makes the difference, even if you have the smallest bit of a relationship and rapport with someone because it's very quick, learn plays, get into shape. This is the idea of our style of play that we want to sort of have. Exactly. And then you know, we have the bubble. So the NBA has gone to a bubble in Orlando and we've seen how that has sort of worked out. I mean, now uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. This was the first time, uh, I think it was game two with Toronto and Boston where we saw family members coming and being able to, you know, be with the, with the players, which Paul George spoke about a little bit, I think over the weekend and mentioned that, you know, it's, it's really hard being in the bubble, being away from your, your friends and your family, like the, the mental aspect of the game is more prevalent when you have less distractions around you, but you also don't have the same outlets that you may need exactly. in order to, you know, take away from just focusing on basketball. Exactly. And so you guys did something similar to that for the summer series in the CEBL. Can you, what was that like for your players in, in I guess, the St. Catherine style bubble? Um, when it came to, you know, the mental preparation uh, of playing a season? It was difficult, right? So for guys, one, not having fans in, in the gym, it's, it's, it takes some getting used to. For sure. You can hear every sound, every call, which is a good thing <laughs> for coaches because we need those calls. Right, <laughs> yeah. In an arena, you can't hear all those calls, right? So it's a good thing. But just for the players, playing in an arena without fans was difficult. Like being in a hotel room and not being allowed to have your girlfriend or your, your son or your daughter or your wife even visit you. You know, and there are a couple yeah. guys who got sent home for breaking those rules. Oh, really? Costing their teammates or, or their team you know, wins because they, they couldn't do it. Um, right. Right. And, and you, you realize how important that is to guys, like having your family with you. And I understand now why the NBA does it because I've lived it. Uh, right. Or you're talking to your, I'm talking to my son on, on Zoom or on WhatsApp video. And he's like, dad, like, you know, this is just too long. Like, when are you coming home? Yeah. And if my older son said it, I'd be like, oh, you're you're a grown man, you know, but <laughs> yeah. my younger son, he's not usually an emotional guy. So and he's like, right. dad, like, you know, I need you to come home. Like, I miss you. And I'm like, my gosh. Uh, so I can imagine for guys like Yanis, guys like Paul George, guys like LeBron, you know, LeBron has three. Yeah. Um, to not see your kids and your wife and, you know, being able to hold them. And while video is OK, is way better than phones. Back in the day, it's just 
just yeah. seeing them almost hurts a little bit more. <laughs> for, no, for sure, right? Because they're, I mean, they're close, but they're, but they're not. Well, really, they're not, right? right? So it, it's, it's like a virtual reality thing where, you know, you have a relationship with someone, but you can't physically reach in and touch them. And yeah. be there, and and all the things that you're missing, you know. So my son dunked for the first time. Wow! He practiced, and I was away. And when Miss J told me, she's like, "You wouldn't believe what happened in practice today," you know. She's like, "Jadane dunked for the first time in game through traffic," and I'm like, "Oh my damn!" And that's something I wanted to be there for. So for sure, like being around in the bubble, being isolated from your family, it's that it does a job on your mental. Um, and even though you love the game, COVID makes you realize that, man, family is the most important thing in your life. Right. And so I, I do want to get back to the mental side of it because um, you went to school for sports psychology. So I want to get back to that after we talk about this next point. So you talked about, you know, COVID bringing people together, right? Everyone's complained about 2020. 2020 is the worst year. Yes, we lost, you know, my favorite basketball player, Kobe Bryant. Um We've had this pandemic, which has, you know, shut countries down and, you know, hurt our economy. We've had, you know, we just lost, you know, Chadwick Boseman, you know, Black Panther, who for so many things that he was a part of, when you look at like the, the filmography of, of what he's done, especially recently, you know, played Jackie Robinson in 42, James Brown in Get Up. He played Black Panther in Civil War and, and, and Black Panther and Avengers and we start to lose these people that we start to think, you know, did we appreciate them while they were here? Because when Kobe Bryant retired in what, 2016, I believe, you know, we were excited to see, okay, what's next for Kobe. And we saw the Mamba Academy sort of take off. We saw him really, and I don't think you can see it, but you know, really make this girl dad thing, you know, super exciting. Elevated the women's game and girls in general across. 100%. I mean, he had impact, and I'm not going to say her last name because I would completely butcher it, but Sabrina, who went to Oregon uh, and was like the first uh, first overall pick in in the uh, latest draft, I think for Washington, if I'm not mistaken, Um, you know, elevated so many things and still, you know, stayed in touch with NBA players and was doing a lot of, you know, mental awareness and a lot of coaching and we were excited to see what was going to come next you know was Gigi going to be that next star because look you look who her dad was and look what he he was doing man right and that's what everybody says right so we so we lose Kobe you know we have this pandemic and we have people collecting you know the Canadian emergency response fund in in Canada and unemployment checks in in the United States and you know restaurants and bars and small pop mom and pop shops closing down but the one thing when we look at all of the negatives and i was talking to um my friend jelani about this just the other day you know this is the ultimate glass half full glass half empty scenario you know a lot of people are saying you know 2020 worst year ever let's get back to 2021 but there are a lot of things that people are thankful for in 2020 and that is spending time with family members that they normally wouldn't because they were away working or travel a lot for work. And the family dynamic I feel is the one thing that people really got to expand and work on and enjoy. And I have two very small kids. So it was nice having both mom and dad home for the period of time that we were, because it meant that we 
got to see things like, for instance, my youngest daughter walking for the first time, right? And we don't want to take those things for granted. But then as you alluded to before, you know, your son dunking for the first time in game, in traffic, real speed. I mean, that's that's the equivalent of you putting in the years of helping him develop and working on those skills that, you know, unfortunately you miss those things. It's tough, right? Like how, how does that impact you knowing that I, I don't want to like rub it in, but like mm. you're not going to be able to experience that first time with your son. Uh, the impact is you feel it. Like you feel something it's, it's, it's more of a, a pain in your chest and an yeah. aftermath in your stomach. <laughs> yeah. And every time you think about it, you know, you, it's just a sadness comes over your eyes. But uh, that's been my life. Uh, it's my life has been on the road. Like, for example, like a typical day in my life uh, when I was working full time, so I'd work full time at the TDSB. Uh, from TDSB, I would head down to Ryerson, uh, about 45 minutes to an hour traffic for team practices. And Monday, Tuesdays, we would practice, you know, six to eight, eight to 10. So <laughs> on Mondays, I'd be home late. Uh, Tuesday, um, Wednesday, Thursdays, the daytime practices. And I'd miss some of those due to work. Um, right. right. But then I'd come home and I would have to either run a practice uh, for hoops or I'd have to come home and do something for the family or do a course, write a paper, because at the same time, I was going to uh, the Grand Canyon University for my degree uh, in uh, sports psychology. So my day, my mornings were jam packed. Uh, and that's on top of travel. So if we're traveling to Ottawa, or we're traveling to, you know, Laurier or Kingston, you know, all these trips are, you know, with a bunch of guys, 16, 15 guys, depending yeah. on the red shirts we have, like it takes a lot to coordinate and be there. So right. being away from home as a coach is something that, you know, your family gets used to, you get used to it. And if it wasn't for COVID, I wouldn't realize how important it was for me to just be here a hundred percent. Right. Even being home, you know, I'm, I'm the lead scout for some of the games and our other assistants. This year I was the sole lead scout uh, because our staff, our staff changed. So every night I'll be up 1, 2 a.m. watching video, clipping games, you know, personnel scout, team scout, uh, personnel sheets, uh, edits for guys, uh, team edits. So it, it, it doesn't stop. For an assistant coach, it never stops. You can't right. cut it off. You know, I'd be in a restaurant cutting film or, you know, thinking about what clips I'm going to use for to show the guys tomorrow. Or, so you're always working. Uh, and COVID allowed me to kind of stop and, and be here 100%. No school, no TDSB, no Ryerson. Uh, and I enjoyed that for about six weeks. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then St. Catherine's happened. And, you know, yeah. Coach Baldwin say, you know, Coach, like we have a spot for on our staff and I want you to be a part of it. And it, it was hard to even make that decision. You know? Right. And I talked to my kids, first of all, uh, which I usually talk with Miss J first. But, you know, I'm yeah. spending so much time, you know, with the boys. And, you know, I love the relationship we're developing. We're outside on the driveway every day where there's a field across our home uh, where it's open. We're doing exercises, agility, cardio. You know, we're going we're going out for walks and, you know, we're spending time watching shows and playing video games. And I'm like, uh, do I really want to be away from this right now? <laughs> 
So wait, you're you're playing video games? Like oh, you're getting love, on the sticks? I love video games, man. I grew oh, up. Man. I'm the oldest of um, three brothers and a sister. Okay. So like, I bought I bought the first Nintendo in our house. Wow. First game I bought with it was Street Fighter. (laughs) Okay. So um, what is like your game of choice on, I guess, whatever the the system or console that you have is now? So if they're like, dad, we want to play, you choose what game we're playing. What are you bringing out? So if we play Street Fighter, they don't have a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, they never want to play Street Fighters. So fair enough. The game, I love fighting games. I think you know it, it gets you thinking and moving uh, realistically. Uh, so the game we play is Dead or Alive. Um, okay. We play a lot of Dead or Alive as a family, uh, and Blaze Blue, uh, where never a game heard of that one. it doesn't require a lot of technical button okay. control. You can kind of figure it out. The combos are like built into a button. Where Street Fighters, you have to actually do a hand movement, then a button to get, you know, the right. Out. So we play a lot of that 2K. I, I, I grew up on NBA Live. Right. So it's been a hard transition to 2K because a lot of times you press the buttons and the things that you want to happen <laughs> never happen. Right. So my son has mastered 2K. My oldest son, Jadane, has mastered 2K. So he's probably the best at 2K in the family right now. I still challenge him, but... I would say I'd rather play him live than play him in 2K. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, are the boys Raptors fans? No, the boys The boys have all kind of branched off. Um, okay. Uh, Jadane loves um, Giannis. He loves um, Jason Tatum. Uh, Damon Lillard fan. So he watches a lot of Boston, a lot of Milwaukee. Okay. My younger son is like, he, he doesn't know. So he kind of just enjoys watching the game and playing the game and watch everybody. I think he, he likes Damon Lillard because of Damon Lillard's mentality. And right. You can see Damon Lillard's size similar to his, uh, where he is now. So it's easier to relate to that. Uh, but Jadane, probably biggest Jason Tatum fan, uh, studies him, all his sets. And because I'm a coach, he understands what to look for. Right. So he's looking at his his form. He's looking at his space. He's looking at his shot quality, how he guards the ball, how he comes off screen. So he'll pull it up and say, Dad, look at this. Or, Dad, can I watch uh, Jason on Synergy? Uh, And he'll pull up all his clips and all his layups, all his dunks, all his threes, all his ball screens. So he's studying them, you know, deliberately. Uh, He's not just an avid fan where he's like, oh, my God, it's Jason. (laughs) as long as he doesn't try to imitate his haircut and facial <laughs> hair, I mean, then 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 we're good to go. Because Jason Tatum's ugh, gets a, I, gets a little. I don't know what he was doing with that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's interesting what you said about your youngest son. You know, uh, looking at Dame Lillard as someone who he can relate to, right? And this is going to bring me back a little bit to Chadwick Boseman, mm-hmm. and that is, you know, people are really sleeping on the importance that he had. Now, obviously, he's not like the most important you know, black actor. Um, mm-hmm. But he was the first, and I'm not trying to like shit on Wesley Snipes. Yes, he was like the first black superhero, if yeah. you want to call Blade that. But Chadwick Boseman playing Black Panther was like the most relevant black superhero that we've really seen. 100%. You know, we had we had Blade, we had Storm from X-Men, but Chadwick Boseman really came into the fold as the main guy. Exactly. Right. I mean, we've seen for years. I mean, I mean, up until Denzel, 
where black actors or actresses were always in a supporting role. But for the first time, you know, we finally have men and women and, and superheroes and athletes, especially where you have young kids who now see something that they can relate to, something that they can aspire to. And this is the importance, again, I also place back on Kobe with Gigi. And that is, you know, the WNBA was the WNBA. It wasn't going to be, or at least it wasn't at the time, an equivalent to the NBA. It was it was a league for women to play in, and it was continuing to grow. But Kobe really, not to, I mean, I don't think he went out to do that to really change the, the way that women's basketball was looked I think, at. I think, he, I think he did. Kobe oh, you think he did? Okay. Kobe doesn't do anything accidental. Everything no, that, that's true. Does, is that's true. planned and executed and where he's going to be, when he's going to be there, why he's there, what he wears, who he talks to. Kobe, Kobe is one of the strategic minds of our generation, man. You know, I, I, I truly miss that guy. Just I still go by and, and watch his stuff. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because um, when it happened, um, my wife was up, upstairs. It was at our old house. She was in her like room. She was doing something, and I had my, my oldest daughter who at the time was just about to turn three. Um, and when I got the news, I didn't believe it. And then I got a few messages from like my friends. And then when I turned on the coverage, I wept. Like I have not cried over some, the loss of someone that way. That wasn't a family member ever. Like I, I was like, ever. the only thing I can remember is my, my grandma who, loved princess diana when that news came out i like couldn't understand the emotion that someone was feeling that wasn't like a family member exactly but when kobe passed and the news came out i was completely devastated and the other day um i don't know what happened there was something that i was watching with my with my daughter and uh and i got like a, just a little emotional there was some, i think i was actually I was actually rewatching Black Panther, um, and it was there was just a scene early on in the movie, and I was just like, oh man, I can't believe he's not here. And I got like just a little teary eyed, a little emotional, and my daughter turns to me and she says, "Dad, was he the one? Was he the man who died?" And I was trying to wrap my head around like, what is she talking about? Mm -hmm. And she's like, you know, the guy on the TV in the helicopter, and it brought me back to Kobe, and I was like man like they were at the time i wasn't comparing them i wasn't yeah. like you know the importance of kobe the importance of chadwick boseman but it's like yeah you know what it they, they are in that sort of that that tier and and in such a time where we celebrate lives we've also gone down this road where we've had so much happen especially in the united states but also in canada recently with some of like the social justice uh, if you want to call it if you know the I don't want to just call it police brutality because I think it's like a little bit more because it's not just brutality. It's, it's negligence. It's, it's, it's so many things, but the, the injustice towards, you know, some of the black people in, in America and I want to say maybe native American and people of color in, in, in Canada, it's, it's crazy. And I want to bring this back to basketball because last week there was talks that the NBA was going to be canceled, that they were going to shut the season down and they weren't going to play anymore. And, and our guy, I'm going to call him our guy. LeBron was like, no, nah, we're done. 
were finished. And a lot of people were like, well, why would the NBA players decide to, to postpone or boycott games? And as a father of two, you know, what were, were you asked about this at all? Did you address it? Did you have any sort of conversations about what has been going on recently and, and sort of explaining to your kids, you know, the importance of what is going on right now? A hundred percent. Like, you know, this, this is something that we live, but I just want to, I'm going to tie all this together in a, in a second. Cause I think Chadwick and Kobe is an important thing to address. And then I'm going to flow into connected to that. Um, I think what both of those gentlemen did Chadwick and Kobe is that they elevated black culture, right? Yeah. So, you know, the, the difference between Chadwick and, and the rest of the, the American actors, they were always portrayed in somewhat of an American setting. Yeah. Uh, whereas Chadwick with Black Panther, Black Panther was black excellence. It was uh, a, a country that was hidden, that's at the peak of civilization, um, black owned, black led, and nobody knew about it. And for them to expose that to the world, kids started believing like, wow, like we can be that. Um, and that's why his popularity grew so much. And not because he was the actor in the movie, but because that's who he was in real life. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's why it transitioned into elevated him into the person he we know him to be now. That's what that's what that was the person he always was. Right. So, you know, hats off to him for what he did. You know, I wish him all the best in the afterlife and he deserves to be elevated, you know, in the real life right now, real time, continuously for what he's done for our culture. Um, for Kobe is the same thing. Kobe's mentality, Kobe's um just edge of knowing what he wants and just knowing who he wants to go with is yeah. separated. Because a lot of black people, you know, in general, because of all the negativity that surrounds us is, you know, we are kind of tempered and we, we hold ourselves back based on other people's opinion or the, the way other people are gonna treat us, the way other people are gonna react to us. So we restrict ourselves from becoming our full selves. Right. Kobe was not that guy. You know, yeah. Kobe was his full self in every moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he definitely was. Right. Whether you liked him, whether you hated him, it, it was of no, none of his concern. And he set his own standard for who he is. He never let anybody from the outside set a standard. And, and that's something I've adapted into my life just from watching him operate. Um, you know, and when you see the NBA where it is now, it's Kobe's mentality that is trans trans. I'd say transition into a lot of these NBA players where they understand that, you know what? Life is more than basketball. Uh, yeah. it's, 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 it's how, even though we're making millions, like I have nephews, I have cousins, I have brothers who are being mistreated in, in you know, in their communities, in their workplaces, right? In their schools. <laughs> And yeah. we have to do something to help them because, you know, God has placed us in this position uh, where we have a platform, we have a stage, people are watching us nightly, people are listening to us. And for them to be able to, to say that, hey, we're going to walk away from this uh, just, to, just to stand up for the race and, and show that, you know what, no more of this, you know. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's incredible. It's an incredible thing. And, you know, I, I, I just wish that, we could progress as as a race beyond you know awareness because right now a lot of the things that we're doing is awareness so for me uh the conversations i have with my sons which is your main question 
is not about awareness. It, it's right. about action. So, you know, what does it look like when you go to school? You know, I want to I want to know when a teacher talks to you in a certain way that makes you feel that you're not enough or right. you're not at that level. I want to know when something happens in the community, whether it's at the grocery store, you know, whether you you're just walking on the street. Like I want to have those conversations with them. Um, for them, it's like, how do you move on beyond this and, and, and develop a life like life skills? Uh, and I think we don't talk about life skills enough with our with our young people. It's great to march. It's great to wear the T-shirts. It's great to put the fist up. But as you go out there every day, my wife and I, we've lived black lives. We've dedicated our lives um, in these communities where nobody wants to work, where nobody wants to teach, where nobody you know, people are afraid to, to, to visit these communities. And we've been in these communities working tirelessly to elevate Black lives. And I would say to everybody who's about the positivity, like, you know, are you taking those action steps? Are you teaching our kids financial literacy? Are you teaching them about ownership? You know, are you teaching them about higher education, but applied higher education, not just going to school for something that you can't use after, like, you know, where is the industry? So giving them those things to, to move forward with so they can actually change their lives. Because after you march, after you put up all the social media posts, like, people are still going to be people. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I'm, I, think, I think that's super important. I mean, financial literacy is always the one of the main things that I always talk about. Um, and I don't want to say I was like financially like illiterate, but it definitely wasn't something that was, there wasn't an importance placed on it. Um, and whether that was supposed to be done by my parents or from our schooling institution, it wasn't until like I really, I got married that my wife who was, you know, it was thrusted upon as like an immigrant to the country yeah. that they needed to. Right. Like it was something that they were forced to figure out, whereas those who are fortunate to be, you know, second, third, fourth generation Canadians didn't necessarily have that thrust upon them. They were just like, you know, mom and dad are there to 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 give us or to lead us. And, you know, with a lot of people who are 30, 40 something staying at home and not knowing responsibility because it wasn't really taught to them. But that's not the case with, you know some of our younger generation, right? Um, you can look no further than some of our main sports teams, uh, sports organizations like the NFL or, or the NBA, not so much the NHL, but again, I'm going to draw comparisons to the amount of non-white athletes. It's just not, there isn't an importance placed on it. And I know some leagues have symposiums where they have people come and talk about it. But I mean, the NHL, you don't really hear about people losing tons of money unless it's with like investing in the wrong thing. But that in itself is a privilege to be able to invest in something. Exactly. Right. Where if you look at some of the NFL players or the the NBA players, you know, there are look at uh, who is it? Antoine, Antoine Walker, I believe, from the uh, from when he was with the Boston Celtics, signed a huge contract. And five or six years out of the league was completely broke. Um, right. And so you look at a guy like, uh, I'll go to a rapper, DMX, another guy who had financial woes. And you have to think that, you know, some of these guys who maybe aren't paying attention or, or maybe not paying attention, bad way to describe it, who where school isn't something that they can relate to, whether it was they didn't have the help. They didn't have the buy-in. They had a skill that they knew was going to take them to a certain level. 
that's where their tunnel vision was. Exactly. But there wasn't someone who was there to say, hey, listen, you know, we need to, you know, have invest. a diverse portfolio. Let's our, invest our in stocks. this. Mm. Just saving money. Like you yeah. don't need to buy all of these things or, you know, to help, you know, the 17 different family members that have come out of the, out of the woods all of a sudden that you've made it. <laughs> and then I want to, and then you have the difference of like a LeBron James and people can say what you will about the athlete that he is, but LeBron James is definitely doing something where he's helping invest in not only his community, but players and athletes and anyone that he can sort of reach with his group of friends or, you know, athletes, and then starting, you know, his, I promise school that is really one of the only people that we've sort of seen take that leadership role, both on and off of the court. Actually, similar, similar to like a Kobe Bryant investing, but I mean, what LeBron has really done to elevate the people around him to bring them to that level is something that we haven't really seen outside of that. And that's LeBron as a person is a great, uh, yeah. he's done and what he continues to do is I wish more people at his level um, would take those uh, steps and, and do those things. Schools, education, um, finances, take care of everybody in his circle. Make sure that they have homes and you know they're starting businesses. He's putting them in leadership positions. He's gone beyond awareness with his circle. And I think it's the same thing that we have to do as units, family units, is take our families into those things, right? And that's what me and Miss J try to do with our families. Like, no, it's time for you to buy a property. It's time for you to sell a property. It's time for you to invest in this stock. This stock is going up. It's gone up $15 in two days. Right, put you know a thousand dollars here. So we've, we're trying to, to to every 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 everyone around us who orbits around us. We try to elevate, uh, but again, you know, it's a small. Our, our reach is not as big as LeBron's, but again, right. there's guys at LeBron's level who aren't doing that. And and, and that's my message to to most people: is like, can you use your platform? to elevate you know, the middle class. Can the middle class use their platform to elevate uh, the lower class, the people are struggling? Can the lower class elevate themselves and then pull more people with them? Uh, that's the only way to create real change. Uh, right. And if, if we all do that and replicate that over and over again, now we have buying power. And buying power in the right direction versus right. buying shoes and you know, clothes and cars, now we have you know, equity where we can now make moves and, and, and buy million dollar properties and, you know, own things, own things and businesses that, you know, sure. transition into to, to growing wealth versus, you know, surviving from paycheck to paycheck or, you know, week to week or month to month. Uh, I think that's the next move for, you know, our people in terms of growth. Now, I think it's important. I mean, one of the things that you just said is that, you know, you're trying to help your circle of people. And hoping that people who have status and a reach can do it. Now, not everybody has, I don't want to say the same reach, but I want to say the same maybe safety blanket that a, someone like LeBron James has where they can afford to make a mistake and it not bury them exactly. in their career, right? He's invested in so many different things and he's the face of so many different things that a misstep for him, he'll still be able to rebound. And I think maybe people operate on a side of fear sometimes where they're afraid that if they do make that mistake, they say that wrong thing, they do that wrong thing, that they'll get buried and they don't have the social clout that LeBron James has. So let him do that. I'll 
take care of me and I'll support him, but people aren't willing to take the risks. Whereas someone like you who easily could say, listen, I don't really have a platform. I don't have the reach. So I'm not even going to worry about it. I'll let someone else do it. That is also a mentality that some people have as well. But, you know, I only have, I'll use Instagram as an example. I only have like a hundred followers. So me supporting these movements or really, you know, engaging my community, it's not really going to make a difference. But, you know, Coach J has 1,500 or 2,000. Let me let him do it and I'll support him. But sometimes in supporting, it's not it's not enough because you're still going to miss out on some people that are part of your circle specifically. Exactly. Right? Exactly. exactly. And, and so it's, it's, it's great that you use those platforms. And I want to sort of transition to one of the things that you talked about when, it, when you said that you engage in your communities. Now, you have a background with youth. And we can all sort of say that youth are at the most impressionable age where they're going to learn the most about becoming an adult, right? You have a, a 13 year old and you have a 16 year old. I have what I like to call a three nager. Uh, <laughs> you know, she's three going on a teenager. Well, I'm 13. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's crazy, but it, it's one of those things where like, I'm starting to realize that even though she's so young, she is picking up learning and understanding things at such a young age, oh, right. things that, that I I would never have dreamed that she would understand. And that's not just in words, but responsibility and actions, um, positive positives and negatives. And so I now with my wife understand the importance that we have as parents to be, to understand that, listen, she may be three, but she is starting to learn things that is going to affect her exactly for her entire life. Entire life. And so you engaging with Miss J with with youth, right? Uh, when you worked for city, the city of Toronto or Parks and Rec, what it was called back Parks in the and day. Rec. <laughs> the and that, that's it. That's 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 the the beginning. And then even with uh, the TDSB, um, you know, you went to school at Centennial College for an advanced diploma in child and youth work. What was it at the time that made you want to engage in that age demographic? And what are some of the rewards that you're seeing now through, you know, your many years of, of working with that group? It's a great question. Um, I think for, for me, I was motivated to, to make change, you know, on the ground floor. And, and that's why I started working with the city. I was probably the best basketball player in the community uh, around Jane Wilson at the time. And okay. basketball wasn't a, it wasn't a popular thing in that community. Like up the street was Jane Finch. Uh, Shoreham, Falstaff was down the street, but in that Jane and Wilson catchment, like there was not a lot of basketball. So I started working at Chalkhorn Community Center. And, you know, I thought I was going there to teach kids basketball. Um, right. And then quickly I realized that, again, basketball is just a tool to get the kids, you know, in, in the building uh, and get them in a safe zone to, to help them grow. Uh, so immediately Jay and I switched from, you know, sports and dance and she was the dance instructor. Uh, I was the basketball instructor and we quickly realized that we need to teach these kids life. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. We need to teach them how to cook. You know, we need to teach them, <laughs> we need to teach them what it means to be punctual and, and, and be on time and not get left by the bus or, you know, you know, get your permission form signed or, you know, what a credit card is, what, 
what credit is, um, you know, just what what taking your hygiene. Like, you know, you wouldn't believe how much conversation we've had with kids about hygiene and, you know, why school is important, even though you don't like it. And the difference between being in a community center versus being in in, in a school. Um, So it it was like a constant, constant, constant um, education, life education when I worked for the city of Toronto Parks and Rec. And I decided to go back to Centennial. Uh, because I wanted to not just help kids in the short term, but I wanted to help kids and youth in the long term. And I should right. say youth, not kids, because I also find that we have tons of funding. If you remember Parks and Rec for kids programs or Tiny Tots programs, yeah. um, any after school, preschool program was well funded, overstaffed. I think their ratio at the time was maybe five to one or where ours was 15 to one. Right. So we had less less staffing dollars, less program do- dollars, uh, and less you know extracurricular activity dollars. So generally, in the community, um, youth programs weren't funded. Uh, and right. people, oh, let's take care of the kids. Let's take care of your kids. But as they got to youth, the youth age, oh, they can take care of themselves. But that's yeah. the we found that they. They didn't know what they wanted to do. They didn't know what direction they were going. They didn't know what place they were in the world. And I went back to school just to make sure that the information that I'm giving them is the right information, the relationships that we're building are the right relationships. And we're infusing positivity into them. We're infusing hope and inspiring them to be more than their circumstances, to be more than their environments. Um, And now the rewards are, you know, Ms. J and I, we have to, actually turn down weddings and, you know, <laughs> birthday parties and showers. And, you know, we can, hard, we had to move out the community just to have a life. Right. Because <laughs> kids would just show up to our doors uh, or we would go to the mall to buy something and we would end up talking, <laughs> you know, we became local celebrities in the community. Right. With the work we did uh, where parents would meet us and say, Hey, like, I don't know what you did with my son or I don't yeah. know what you did with my daughter, but, you know, thank you. Um, and those stories were like on and on and a constant. And now to see a lot of those kids from back, you know, maybe 15, 17 years ago, now married, now owning homes. Now it's, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Now it's interesting. And I don't want to, you know, take away from the importance of what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it hard to believe Miss J doesn't want to go to weddings because I was lucky enough to have the privilege of having her at my wedding. And I can't I, looking looking at the video, she tried to leave like 17 times. And every single time it was just like another song came on. She was like, All right, I'm gonna stay for one more song. And you know, she she closed it out with us. So was it was it really you know you saying listen we can't do all the weddings or was it Miss J because you know my what? money's on you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it became so overwhelming um, that we both said like wow like the year before the year before COVID you know yeah. must have done maybe I'd say twelve to fourteen weddings. <sighs> Damn, it's like my goodness. I'm like you know we're we're gonna go broke. <laughs> <laughs> Dropping five hundred dollars a year, seven hundred dollars a year, a thousand dollars a year, on each of our you know past, um, I'd say participants, students, because uh, for us it includes everything. For for her, it's you know City of Toronto Parks and Rec. Yeah. For me, it's both 
you know, basketball um, from the community now to the school side, now to the university side, now to, like, so it's always something happening. And, uh, you know, players love coaches who love them. For <laughs> 100%, right? And they always want you to be a part of it. But, you know, sadly, we can't do all of them, uh, which is a good problem to have. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm sure people understand that, you know, that they, they know the importance that you have in the community. They know you're not, you know, the only one. Um, and like I said, trying to schedule this, I understand you're a busy man. Like it was like, all right, you have your days where, you know, you can't do stuff. I have like my two trash night TV nights with my wife where I'm like 90 day fiance can't give that up. You know, that's, it's the understanding that we have. Um, but I want to talk about sports psychology because I think now is there's way more of an importance placed on psychology, especially in sports than there was maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, We recently had Kevin Love come out and DeMar DeRozan come out and talk about the depression and anxiety that they felt, you know, being an athlete and with traveling and being isolated and alone. And, you know, this time, with COVID really put pressure on people who didn't have those outlets that they use, whether it was going to a doctor or going to gatherings to talk to people to, they were stuck in their homes and left sometimes alone to deal with it. Now you went to Grand Canyon university and got your bachelor of science in psychology with an emphasis in performance and sports psychology. And what was your what was your reason to go again? Sports psychology not exactly the most flashy uh, thing to study, but why did you feel that it was important? And how have you used it in your coaching career with some of the athletes that and students that you've sort of come in contact with? So again, um, for me, going going to Ryerson University, I originally went to Ryerson University for my advanced diploma. For my I did my advanced diploma at Centennial College. Uh, right. It was to transition into Rice University. So I went to Rice University, started actually my first three classes. And my classes were Monday nights and Tuesday nights. So one night I decided to go to the Rice men's practice because class finished early. <laughs> okay. And uh, there I met uh, Coach Roy Rani. And, you know, after practice, I watched it and I was, I was amazed because the, the year prior to that, I took a year off to travel. Um, North America and just see basketball on all different levels uh, in, 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 I, in, in hopes that I'm going to make Hoops Canada the best program for our kids possible. And after speaking to Roy Ryan after practice, he said to me, he's like, you know, the questions you're asking me have never been, no, no one has come in here and asked me these questions after practice. You know, wow. what, what, what's going on in your head? I want to know more. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, from then, from that, from that practice, you know, he's like, I want you to come back next week. And I want you to come back next week. I want you to come back next week. So each week after class, I'll go by practices. And I went from, you know, just being on the sideline to being at the score table. And then, you know, a night somebody was short or coaches didn't show up and he's like, come on the floor. And, um, it, it just kept building. And he said to me, he's like, you know, I know you're doing child and youth work, but, you know, what would you think about, you know, actually being a part of the game at this level and, and, and actually making an impact uh, with, the, with the stuff you've done in the community, with the experience you have, with the players that you've developed through Hoops Canada? Uh, I think you can contribute to this level. And I think you, you know, studying, you know, something else and, and not being a student to allow you to be a part of the staff. 
and I started exploring. And ironically, as one, one night after practice, he's speaking to me and the athletic director comes down the stairs. Oh, wow. And uh, our athletic director at the time was Ivan Joseph. Um, and Ivan Joseph is a PhD, or I should say Dr. Joseph, <laughs> is a PhD <laughs> in sports psychology. Oh, wow. And he starts to tell me his story. Coach Ryan introduced me to him. And he starts telling me his story. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. You know, first of all, I've never met a black man with a PhD before. Okay. <laughs> in yeah. person. Uh, in right. person. And he's like, let's let's step to the side let's talk you know what are you thinking what are your aspirations is like Roy's told me great things about you and you're coming from class to here and you know picking things up and learning and asking the right questions and you know what do you think about sports psychology and i'm like wow like you know i've never thought about it and he's like think about it some more here's some links study it this is what i've done this was this is wow. what i was able to do with it and from that conversation, uh, I went on a, a journey of research and uh, how can I do this? So I immediately transitioned from Ryerson to Grand Canyon, which was the most suitable program because of the flexibility of doing it in the Evelyn's and you know, not being able to do practice, work, family, hoops. <laughs> it, it allowed me to be real mobile. estate. <laughs> real estate. I mean, geez. It, it allowed me to be mobile and, and still get it done. Um, right. And, you know, that decision was probably one of the best decisions I've made because the mental aspect of the game is the most important aspect of the game. Right. And, and giving players tools. And, and a lot of people don't understand the anxiety that goes with, 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 with sports, especially high performance sports. And there's a difference between recreation sports and high performance right. sports. Uh, whereas high performance sports, you're expected to win. You know, yeah. you don't win, <laughs> you don't have a job. Um, right. So it put pressures not just on the athletes, but it put pressures on the coaching staff. So it's a very, it's very business minded. So I'm coming from a community based uh, experience where I'm helping young athletes, helping young people, helping young families grow up and use the game to elevate themselves to now an environment where it's strictly about winning and, 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 and getting your athletes to perform at a high level. But while we're trying to get our athletes to perform at a high level, you know, you ignore the mental side of it where you see, you know, DeMar DeRozan expressed it, Kevin Love yeah. expressed it. A lot of times coaches are like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> right. Know? For sure. Like go figure it out. Like I need you to perform and sports psychology has changed that. Uh, and it's saying to coaches, like, you have to care about your athletes because their mental state equals their physical performance on the court. All right. So we need to give our athletes pregame tools where they, whether it's meditation, whether it's visualization, uh, whether it's listening to a motivational video, whether it's reading, you know, some athletes read their Bibles before games. Um, right. looking at a tattoo on your arm or tattooing something on your fingers that you can look at to just keep you in that zone of performance. So before you step on the court, you know, where's your mindset, right? Then giving right. coaches the tools for them to help their athletes perform within the game. So there are guys you can yell at and get them to perform and there are athletes you can't yell at. There are athletes you have to have conversation with. So, you know, that athlete walks off the court, you know, and the coach is in a, a, a I would say a hyper extended state where he has to know that I can't talk to this guy at this time. Uh, I have to let one of my assistants talk to this guy, get him back and then put him in the game. Right. So that's in game live psychology 
of knowing your athletes. Um, and then for some athletes, your best athletes usually recover the worst. Right. So post game, like post game, understanding each athletes after the game, like, you know, where's your mindset? You know, what do you need to do after a game? What do you need to to bring yourself back down? You know, is it spending time with your family? Is it, you know, therapy? Uh, is it going for a walk? Is it watching a movie? So all those things like taking care of your athlete in a full cycle um, and, and catering to what mental state they are is, is probably the most important thing right now for coaching staff. And it's what keeps you in tune with your athletes and keeps them performing and they love you for it. Right. And it, I mean, it's interesting because people seem to forget that athletes are people too, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> they're like, there's so much pressure and anxiety. And, and if you have, let's just say like a, a high anxiety job, right? People can only take so much if they don't have the outlets to sort of decompress. And that's just like, you know, a grocery store worker or um, a, a male person, you know, they always, th that saying of going postal, right? It's just, there's so much anxiety in some of these, these jobs that unless you have the right valve and release, you know, sometimes people break and we seem to think of athletes and actors and actresses as these superheroes where we have these demands to perform in front of tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> on, yeah, on a, on a, on a daily, on a daily basis. And we expect that, you know, they perform and if they have an off day, people let them have it. Right. I mean, unfortunately the drawback of a social media with some athletes who put themselves out there to talk with, you know, with fans, you know, you can never win. And when you have, you know, a poor performance and then you have all of this negativity that's being filtered into your social media uh, by fans or people yelling at you or throwing things at your bus or, or, or your plane or, or whatever it is, exactly. that we seem to forget that these people are, are humans. Like they're a human being at the end of the day. And it's hard for them to have the outlet also because, you know, they, they play in the game. They immediately go into the post-game press conference. So they're either being interviewed at their stall or in front of a panel of people. Exactly. And so, you know, you have a bad game and some of these reporters, like they're trying to get a story. They're trying to get that, that click. Right. They're going to push your buttons a little bit in order to get, you know, the worst out of you, depending on what their motive is. And it causes some people to not want to talk to them, but it also doesn't allow them to, you know, decompress or to figure it out. And then, you know, less than 24 hours later, they're back at it again, expected exactly. to perform exactly. at a high level. Exactly. And, you know, you talked about it with Hoops Canada, and I want to get into that a little bit. When I was doing a little bit of research, you have tiers to Hoops Canada. But before we get into the tiers, mm -hmm. can you explain those tiers, but also how Hoops Canada became something that you thought was important and that you wanted to do? So Hoops Canada became important. I, I, I can even go, I'll go all the way back to me in high school. So in, in high school, and my coach said it to me, he's like, you're the best player, you know, coming back for a team next year, you know, and I want you, this is going to be your year to open up and show everybody what you're about. And the year came by, I was excited. I practiced every day. I was outside in the cage under the heated sun and, you know, improve my hops, my shooting, my ball handling, and I was ready to go. I come back to school in September, strike. <laughs> right. And um, coach was like, my coach is a great guy, Keith Johnson at the time, um, who's helped me tremendously and exposed me to the game, thinking the game, I would say. 
And he said, like, you know what? He wanted to coach us regardless of, of, of the strike. And, you know, he started to coach us, run practices. And, you know, the rest of the teachers kind of turned on him and said, you know what? You're not supporting us. You know, you can't. If there's no sports, you know, you, you can't be in the gym with the guys because right. it's not a part of us. So it put pressure on him, kind of threatened his career. Um, and then they finally decided, you know what, we're just going to cancel the season period. So that affected me uh, as a right. young athlete. So years later, I, I left the city of Toronto and I started working with the school board. And right. I think from just my reputation in the community and coaching, like I was probably, you know, 20 coaching guys who were 25, 30 <laughs> oh, wow. in the community at the time. And you know, I developed the reputation of somebody who knows the game and, you know, are able to connect with athletes and kind of get them to perform and work together from different communities. Because, you know, if you know the Jane and Finch communities, many of those guys don't cross the line. They don't talk to each other, even though yeah. they're five minutes apart. So uh, I was able to, to put those guys together in the same gym and have them work together and travel safely from one spot to the next spot um, and to and from. So my experience there kind of allowed me to branch into, you know, coaching uh, at the school level. Uh, and once I got to the school level, I did the same thing in Jane and Finch, where I was able to get guys from Driftwood to play with guys from Connections and right. you know, guys from Rexdale to, to come in and, and, and participate and, and have a safe environment. And two years into it, again, another teacher strike. Yeah. And season's canceled. So these kids had nowhere to go. And, you know, I lost a lot of those guys because there was no basketball because they had no motivation to come to school. Right. So this is me going through it. Then a couple of years, you know, into it, I, one of my team going into it. And the third time it happened. Uh, so I've been through three strikes. I missed this one this year because I was off. So there's been four strikes since I've been a part of the TDS. <laughs> Um, and, you know, Ms. J said to me, he's like, you know, you know, you keep investing so much uh, into these kids and into these schools, like, why not just do your own thing? And that way you are in control and, you know, you don't have to worry about a strike ever. Right. She said it to me for many years, but in the, <laughs> the third strike, it kind of struck. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of like, all right, yeah, like she's she's right. It's uh, you keep being derailed by something that's completely out of your control. control. Take control. Exactly. And right. That's the start. That was the start of Hoops Canada. And, you know, she registered it. She did all the research and she brought me a book and, you know, she wrote Hoops Canada on it. And she's like, it's time. And, and that's how it started. And I was able to kind of take all the ideas out of my head. And you know how Miss J is. Miss J sits you down. She draws out every idea. She puts it in writing because if it's not in writing and it's not on paper, it's not valid. Right. Right. So she sat me down. <laughs> She's like, what do you want it to look like? What's your vision? You know, what, where do you want it to start? What age groups? You know, what's the training process? What's step one? What's so that's where all our tears come from. And, you know, anybody who reads our website can see the brains behind Hoops Canada. It's put out there for everybody to, to see. And there's no secret to it. Right. right. We train everybody from age four all the way up to 18 and now beyond because most of our guys have moved on to universities and now pros. And, you know, it's just grown into something incredible um, that we we're proud of. We're very, very proud of. 
Um, and in terms of tiers, right, we, we try to teach, we try not to eliminate anybody from the game. Right. So you're just trying to be as teach. inclusive as possible, right? Exactly, because we believe the game can be taught. Right. Basketball is a learned sport where other organizations um, who, when we first came out, they're like, you guys are crazy. This is never going to work. You know, you have to take the best talent <laughs> and you have to steal the talent from everybody else to create the best team to win. That's what's going to bring you the attention. And I'm like, that's just not my MO. I've always been a people person in terms of developing minds and bodies at the same time uh, versus just dragging a bunch of people and putting them together and hoping that it's going to work out. Uh, I'd rather take the long route where we're going to build each player, um, each athlete, uh, brick by brick, and they know that we care about them and we are loyal to them. And in turn, they're loyal to us, uh, which is what has you know changed. So you can come in at a skill level where you're just working on skill and learning the game from just an individual standpoint. You can come in at a team, you know, development standpoint where you're learning now systems, you know, passing, cutting, defensive concepts with five players on the floor or building up to five players on the floor, two and two, three and three, four and four, five and five. Or you can come in at the elite level where you've played basketball, you're from a basketball family and you're just ready to learn the X's and O's and, you know, being exposed to the high level competition where we're traveling to Kentucky, we're traveling to Chicago, uh, we're traveling to Florida and you're going to play the best of the best <laughs> from around the world. Um, so whatever level that you are at, we have access to a program for you. And that's, that's what I wanted to put out there. Well, I mean, it's interesting because like, you talked about some of the the criticism that people said, listen, you just get the best players and put them on the court. But it's the inclusivity that really goes back to like everything that we've talked about today. And that is, you know, not leaving anyone behind, right? Making sure that everyone feels that they have the option, whether it's just a recreational standpoint or the elite level, there's room for everyone to be there. Because when we start to sort of say, no, you don't fit into our categories, we don't have space for you. That's how people get left behind. And people decide to, you know, give up on things. And that's just not like your MO from mm-hmm. building communities from, you know, Parks and Rec to TDSB to your local communities and neighborhoods to Hoops Canada. It's all about, you know, getting the best out of people and making sure that everyone knows that they are appreciated and knows that, you know, there's something for them. It's just a matter of let's figure that out together, right? Exactly. Now, now I got to ask you, um, we've (laughs) talked about Hoops Canada. We've talked a little basketball. Um, I want to know that if, you know, there was a coaching style, if you had to pick one coach, any sport, any generation, era, whatever, that you would say, you know, I want that legacy or relates to me with, you know, my, you know, mentality or whatever, who would that coach be? Any sport, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm basketball all the way. So it's, 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 it's a lot of combination in my early days. I was more Greg Popovich. Okay. Right. I was a lot of Greg Popovich, very stern, um, fear, but firm guys right. knew what I wanted. I drove guys to, to their max level, uh, in terms of discipline, you had to do it the right way and you had to do it, uh, at a high level on, repeatedly uh, 
And right. you know, some guys could take it, some guys couldn't, but you know, I got the best results that way because that's the only way I knew. Um, right. As I grew and I, and I did my child and youth work and, you know, then my sports psychology and then just interacting, you know, just my experience at Ryerson of being around the total game. So I was able to see the game from the high the community level to the high school level to the club AU level, uh, then the university level, then the provincial level. Uh, and then the national level through all the camps. And then also, you know, you know, again, Coach Rana being in Sacramento um, as an assistant coach and uh, somewhat of a you know, staff, he, he oversees the staff basically. Uh, he was able to bring me down there and I spent a week and, and saw the, the game at the wow. NBA level uh, where I interacted with, you know, the GMs, the president uh, of the organization, the sports psychologist, wow. the therapist. So I've seen the game at, at, at every level. Right. And, you know, just being able to, to have that perspective has allowed me to become more like Steve Kerr, where it's, you know, I can build a relationship with my players but I can drive them at the same time. You know, I understand that they're players, but they're also human beings. So they need time with their families. You need to get to know their families. You need to build that almost a therapeutic relationship if I'm using, you know, spot psychology or child and youth terms and make it genuine. Like, it's not just, hey, you know, how are you doing? It's really like, how are you doing? You know, right. tell me, uh, listen and, and hear and feel what your athletes are saying to you. So I would say, you know, from a man's standpoint, I would say Doc Rivers as well. Like Doc Rivers is, you know, tried and true, like the player's coach. <laughs> right. Like nobody looks up for their players like Doc Rivers looks up for his players. Um, for sure. And, but just creating culture, Steve Kerr, um, creating a high-level performance, you know, definitely Popovich. And, uh, you know, just the, the kind of man or I want my guys to see me as would be Doc Rivers. Interesting. Interesting that you picked those three coaches. I mean, it's interesting that you said like Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr because you pick like the 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 teacher and then the disciple, right? Like Steve Kerr got his coaching pedigree and understanding from Greg Popovich. But I'm curious to ask you this. We see Steve Kerr succeed and have the ability to to coach those players in Golden State. Does Steve Kerr still have you know that relationship and coaching style if he took that new york knicks job do we see that same coach that we see now with golden state if he went and spent i'm going to say it, three years as the knicks head coach because there's no chance he lasted longer than that you know what new york is a tough place to coach tough place to play we all know that um and again you know it's it's everything is not just your players it's the organization uh, yeah. People always say if you have talent, you win. But I believe that leadership is where talent starts. Like talent wants to play for good leadership. Yeah. And you can see why Cleveland lost LeBron because he no longer wanted to play for that leadership. Right. right. So Steve Kerr, in his intelligence, knew that New York wasn't the right place for him. Right. right. And, and because he knew the style of game that he wanted to coach and the relationships that he wanted to coach. And Mark Jackson already built that rapport with those guys and train them in that sense. Steve Kerr was, he, he, he saw the opportunity to go in and yeah. elevate that, 
to where it's now. I'm going to use the stuff I learned from Phil Jackson. I'm going to use the stuff I learned from Greg Popovich, and I'm going to bring it into this young core and transform them into the Bulls, transform them into the Spurs. Like he had that vision going in, so he knew New York wasn't going to be a spot for him from the start. I think. I think it was the best thing for his career. Oh. <laughs> it's New York is that's uh, just a a tough franchise to play with oh. or play for for sure or even coach for to be to be honest they, i mean they don't do a good job of treating even their past players no. uh with any sort of respect or, exactly. or anything like that exactly. um so you know we're we're we've done pretty good uh we're gonna wrap up shortly but i gotta ask you okay i'm a big sports movie guy okay, okay i love me some sports and you know as as, as you're talking about you know your experience and what you want to get out i'm 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 hearing a little bit of coach carter uh, you know, uh, Coach Boone from Remember the Titans. Okay. Now, if you got to be, you know, a head coach of any of these, you know, famous movies, whether it's a skipper in baseball or a coach in basketball or a head coach in football or whatever, if you got to play and be, you know, one of these coaches from any sports movie, your choice, who would you be and why? You know what? Um, I think it's easy because I love I love Coach Carter. That was one of my okay. favorite movies, and I, will, I always get that comparison. Okay. Uh, because Coach Carter went into a local community and did more than teach basketball. He developed men. That's right. That's always been my mo. People know that if you're around me, you're not just going to develop as a basketball player. You're going to develop as a man or a young woman. And we're going to teach you responsibility. We're going to give you life skills to move forward, to elevate yourself into, you know, being a good husband, into being a good wife, into being a, a good father, um, you know, good doc, like whatever, whatever it is to, to transition you and elevate you to, you know, I would say self-actualization uh, where you're no longer, you know, on the basic level of the Maslow pyramid. You know, you're you're now elevating your life into where you're developing strong friendships, strong relationships. You can function in a business environment. You can develop, you know, relationships that transition you into other relationships and right. you pass that on to your children. So I, I think that's what Coach Carter did in that movie. Um, so that, that would be an easy one for me, you know, I mean, coach Carter, while I like the social justice, uh, element in, <laughs> in that movie, what that Denzel was in, I, I, I appreciate, you know, coach Carter's, um, methods and his ability to transform that community and young men, uh, much more. Well, I mean, it's interesting because coach Carter is based on, on a real story, right? Like coach Carter, there was uh, Ken Carter was, was a real, was a real guy. Yeah you know, with, with real story and a real, you know, wanting to, to go and do that. So, I mean, you, I mean, that's a hell of a, hell of a great coach to, if you got to be one. Um, and then here we go. Some NBA and NFL predictions, because prior to this podcast, I had asked you, you know, are you a Raptor fan? And you shocked me by saying, you know, you're a Laker fan. Cause obviously I'm a huge Laker fan. Always have been, always will be finally something to cheer about. Um, who is winning the NBA title? Um, and I mean, and we can be unbiased. I mean, listen, we've had some hard years where the Lakers have been Ooh. trash, has oh. been complete doo doo. Oh. Um, so, you know, in your mind, from what you've seen, because obviously the bubble has changed a lot of things. Like the bubble, 
is like the ultimate equalizer i would say like it's it's been tough on some of the teams that we didn't think would struggle uh it's given opportunities to teams that you know maybe were injured and got to you know get a little healthy you know who is coming out of the west who's coming out of the east and who's winning that nba title see i'm i'm torn because i love la but i love doc rivers so i see the west i see the west coming down to the clippers and the lakers okay naturally i'd love to see the lakers win but Wow, the Clippers, man, like they play. If I was coaching, if I had to coach a team and yeah. you gave me the Laker team and you gave me the Clipper team, I would coach a Clipper team uh, just because of the, the, the edge and, and aggression that they, they play with. Like they, right. they get down and do, they just get to work. It's, it's very cerebral. Whereas the Lakers, um, you know, LeBron is, is, is the show. Like he's, he's guiding guys. He's, but, you know, you have one guy bringing everybody else along. Whereas right. the Clippers, it's, you know, all 12 guys coming at you at That's the same true. time. So it's going to be interesting. I think whoever comes out the West, and if it's the Lakers, they win the championship. If it's the Clippers, they win the championship. Um, because the Clippers are structured in a way they can cover two great perimeter guys. Um, they, they, they won't have any issues covering, you know, bigs in the East. And it's going yeah. to be a tough matchup for any East team that gets – Clippers or the Lakers. You can't cover AD. I love, absolutely love Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis yeah. defensive efficiency numbers are through the roof. Uh, LeBron's oh, yeah. ability to play the whole game and from the defensive side to passing the ball to taking shots to directing guys and putting them in the right spots. It's just great, great basketball, man. No, listen, don't don't skip, don't sleep on Alex Caruso, okay? <laughs> like, how are you going to mention the Lakers' oh, success man. and not talk about Alex Caruso? Uh, shot maker, he can finish in the <laughs> lane, can guard, plays above the rim. Like, no, great talent, great talent. Yeah, it's um, all right. So you, so who do you got coming out of the East then? So out of the East, you know, I like Milwaukee. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, interesting. I, I like interesting. Milwaukee. My son and I, like my, my 2K team is Milwaukee. I okay. I've kind of used them. You know, they, their shooting isn't great, but Giannis is just a great person. Um, yeah. He's a great human being. Uh, I love him as a person. love him as a player. Uh, last year, the Raptors knocked them out, which I love to see. I think we needed that win as a city, uh, as a country. I For sure. Important. Uh, so I'd love to see Yanis come back and, you know, redeem himself and and and, and put it up, you know, put his money where his mouth is, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And, and, and see if he can get over the hump, right? So I think he's a tough matchup. He's the toughest matchup for anybody for sure. in the West. I think, uh, I think them losing Malcolm Brogdon really – is going to show because like he was a guy who could create his own shot he was a guy who really stepped up in the playoffs last year and it's it's sort of like the missing piece that milwaukee hasn't had this year um i thought he was incredible in the playoffs so prior to the season starting i said listen golden state without kd without clay thompson uh it wasn't going to be the year i saw i thought maybe it's going to be a renaissance year so i picked preseason the Lakers and the Boston Celtics. <laughs> and right now, you know, going if you ask me pre-COVID, or sorry, pre pre-bubble, you know, going into going into the bubble, who would it be? It'd be <laughs> pardon me, it'd be hard to not pick the Raptors. It'd be really hard because they played every team in the NBA incredibly well. 
except yeah. except Boston. the Boston Celtics. Except Boston. It's they're the it's the only team that beat them twice in the bubble. Uh, you know, just and by like large margins guard too. Numbers. It's just tough matchups for those guards. Like yeah. Boston just has those guards that is tough, makes it tough for Toronto to match up with. Uh, they're shot makers. They make them work on the defensive end, and they have to play both ways. Where other guards, they can kind of you know bully over, or they're non-shooters, and they can kind of back off and play that two-three zone. But with with the Boston guards, they have to guard you know forty-eight minutes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, like, you name them, Jalen Brown. I think the best thing that they don't have right Kemba now is, is yeah, Kemba Walker. Gordon Hayward, he's, like, the only piece that, like, just doesn't fit on this team, yeah. and him not being there, being able to play, is probably the best thing for Boston. Boston yeah. I, have, I have Miami beating Milwaukee. I know Milwaukee dropped game one against Orlando and then won four straight, and I know they just lost game one to Miami. But Jimmy Butler is, I mean, Jimmy Butler is a Clipper. <laughs> like Jimmy Butler, Tyler Hero. I mean, like if you look at that squad, I just think yeah. that they're like that tenacious team yeah. that is playing with house money, amongst any other team right now in in the playoffs right now. Miami Heat are playing with house money. Milwaukee's expected to beat them, and Jimmy Butler did not invite any family or friends to the bubble because he said. I have a job to do. To me, it's just business. I think that's a hell of a mentality. I think Boston, Miami in the in the Eastern Conference, Eastern Conference Final. Conference. Pardon me. In the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, I think I think I think Boston. I was talking to to my friend Jelani today, and I said, "Listen, Toronto's gotta has gotta win. They can't have moral victories in Game Two. They can't say, oh, we, you know, we got blown out game one and we only lost by, you know, five or less points in game two. You have to win game two because I don't think you're going to win four of, you know, the the remaining five games. Like, it's just not going to happen. So Toronto's put themselves in a tough situation um, just from losing game one. They knew Boston is a bad matchup for them. So the worst thing to do from a psychological standpoint is go in and get blown out in game one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now, with all the emotions that occurred before game one, like Toronto is probably one of the teams most affected by that publicly. Yeah. Where they, for sure. you know, their coach expressed himself, their players expressed themselves, where other guys kind of just stayed quiet and, and let, you know, the leaders in the NBA do the talk. And the Raptors took the different angle where they actually spoke their feelings and true emotions and expressed it. Um, for national television. So they went into that game not really focused on basketball. For sure. Um, and I think that 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 kind of – Boston came and punched them in the mouth. And, you know, they recovered for game two. But, again, you know, Boston's already has the, the momentum going on their side. So Boston now is going to, you know, bu- buckle down, watch more film, you know, neutralize Van Fleet shooting. You know, Kyle is not 100%. Um, yeah. Take away that spin move from from Siakam, uh, neutralize. Um, I would say I forgot his name. The the big forward on the perimeter, just keep him keep him shooting. Um, yeah. Gasol. <laughs> Marcus Gasol. Gasol. There you go. Yeah. You know, and and keep Serge off the off the boards and 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 so Boston. You can see Boston is strategizing, whereas Toronto is not at their usual level of preparation. Yeah. And that's what's affecting them. Uh, with Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Butler is a different animal, man. 
and the same beast right. to quote right. Kobe Bryant. Right. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I like yeah. it. But, but that, that's what you get with a guy who had to go through Juco um, for yeah. two years and go through that grind. And people don't realize what Juco is. Juco, you 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 don't go to Juco. You survive yeah. Juco. That's right. Like Jimmy Butler survived Juco and then made it into, you know, Division One and then into the league and then fought his way in Chicago to become, you know, a player. Uh, yep. So that mentality that he has going now and teaming up with one of the most, I would say, aggressive coaches, um, tough mental guys of all time. Like when you read Miami's culture or you watch it, they won't even let you into practice. <laughs> they don't yeah. want you to see it. <laughs> Right. Like it, the expectation and the standards in Miami is perfect for what Jimmy Butler is is accustomed to and the way he came up. So I I I'm not surprised he's thriving there. Um, yeah, I think Milwaukee losing Brogdon is is the shooting that's going to affect them. But I think they can figure it out you know, if they figure it out for the next game and they, you know, able to make some shots. You know, it's going to be an interesting series. I'd love to see Milwaukee come out and and, and you know, what I mean do something positive over there <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's gonna be a hell of a series i think i don't think the only sweep i can see happening right now is toronto just is emotionally drained exactly right i think they'll still get a game they might even get two i don't think they're gonna win two in a row but the other thing that toronto has to deal with is the Maasai video being released exactly. right like exactly. we're talking about all the social justice wow. all of the all of the positive things that they're saying but when they won the championship last year, so over a year later, after we hear like the lawsuit is on, then it gets dropped, and then there's a personal lawsuit from the sheriff to, to uh, against Masai, then we get the video. And the video footage validates everything that Masai Ujiri said when you know he's trying to get onto the court. Sure. The, should he have had his credentials on him? Sure. Does that mean that he should be treated the way that he was? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. This guy just put together a historic NBA team. Is about to celebrate the greatest moment in the history of his life and what many people will never accomplish exactly. ever. Defeated a team that people had, you know, claimed as like the best franchise over the last, you know, 10 years. And yes. here's Toronto with a mercenary in, in uh, Kawhi Leonard. And all he wants to do is get on the court to celebrate. And he's actually pretty calm and composed up until that point. Reaching for his credential. Yeah. So, sure, he gets up there. He gets questioned. He's about to reach for it. Push number one. The Masai's like, what the hell are you doing? Push number two. Now everyone can understand what Masai's next reaction is going to be because it is very evident that Masai didn't do anything aggressive to start the altercation. And you can very easily see that if that was anybody other than Masai, if that was Larry Tannenbaum, if that was Nick Nurse, if that was anybody who was white, they're not going to be treated that same way. 100%. And for the Raptors to then get this validation, among everything that is going on right now, there is an emotional letdown there is the adrenaline dump after all of this that they now have to go out and play basketball against a team that doesn't need to do that a team that's well rested like them after sweeping their first round matchup toronto had to deal with a lot of stuff mentally off the court and i think 
it's not that they're not talented. I think they are arguably a top three team in the NBA, the way that they played. It's just hard. It's just it's just it's, it's hard, tough. and I think just too much to ask for this year. It's tough. It's just a series of unfortunate events uh, for yeah. the Raptors. And, you know, like even though we're Laker fans, we're still Toronto. We live in Toronto. For sure, we're in Toronto. We know these guys. You know, more are closely. Like we see, I see some of these guys in national team practices or yeah. know, coming up to Ryerson to work out. Uh, you know, sometimes 10, 10 p.m. midnight. To, to, to get shots yeah. up because they just want to get away from the arena and the usual. Um, so like you, you get to see them on a local level and you want to, you're rooting for them and you want to see them do well, like having Messiah as, you know, just a black you know, president or GM or like, it's just, he's just an example for the community and, you know, for sure to see him, to see him get some redemption from, you know, that, that scene and thank God for, you know, videos and cell phones and, yeah. Where in the past where these things would happen and, you know, he would be painted, <laughs> he would be painted black, basically. Um, For sure. And not not to you. And just to, to have that is, is is something else. And it happens, it happens more often than people give credit for. And I think with all these video footages, it's starting to really, really show visually that this is is undeniable at this point um and it's the same things like just it's not just messiah like i have to have these conversations with my sons uh on a regular basis you know like same thing with my wife and i like we drive really nice cars and you know like if i get pulled over for no reason (laughs) on a regular basis um there's one incident i got onto the highway one exit i got pulled over in under 30 seconds Wow. Um, for speeding while I'm going around the, the, the turn. And I'm like, how can I speed around the turn? Uh, you know, I can't do 150 around the roundabout. <laughs> yeah. And and, and I, not only did I get pulled over, I got pulled over. I'm taking my sons to football practice and yeah. pulled me over, confiscates my car and leave me and my two sons on the side of the highway. Jeez, man. You know what I mean? Why? Because I'm a black man driving a Mercedes and, you know, my kids. Yeah. Now, think about it. Up to this day, my kids still talk about that incident. They're like, Dad, like, we weren't speeding. Right. Because in, in a Mercedes, you can see that the speed limit, like, your, your speedometer is big. It's digital. Yeah, yeah. You can see the numbers and they're like, you know, we weren't speeding. And these are two kids that went, I have to break this down to. They're like, there are people passing us. You know, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's, it's simply because the car that we're driving and they don't expect us to be driving this kind of car in, in this community. And I'm like, you know, this this stuff shouldn't stop you from, you know, driving this kind of cars. You just have right. to get, get a dash cam, you know, record things when you get go to court, like stay calm. Don't don't react when the officer is talking to you. Don't don't give them any negative emotions. Keep it in and then wait for your day in court. And right. that's that's what I've done. You know, I've, I've waited for those arbitration moments where you get a chance to, to tell your story and, you know, hopefully the facts will come out. And if there is video now, you can get video uh, on a regular, regular basis, whether it's a phone, yeah. it's a street cam, like you can record it and, and prove yourself to vindicate yourself. Because in the past, that didn't happen. So I, I was thrilled to watch the Messiah video and, and, and happy for him to to that his reputation wasn't tainted by that incident. Yeah, I mean, it's funny when you were going through, you know, his title. Um, it just reminded me of Bobby Webster, and anybody outside of Toronto, mm-hmm. 
probably doesn't know who Bobby Webster is. Doesn't know that Toronto has a general manager, right? They think that Usai is the guy. Masai is doing the doing everything. Whereas we have Bobby Webster, who is a white guy. So if that's Bobby Webster who's going on to the court, nobody. Do you think he he's being treated that way? (laughs) Hell no. Right? Like he'll get the benefit of the doubt. He'll get the sure. Show me your credentials. Oh, you don't have it? Just pull it out. No problem. Exactly. Which is what Leo Round said, and I credit Leo for that. Yeah, Leo came out and he said, you know what? I didn't get search. And if I didn't have my credentials, they would just allow me to walk onto the court. So, again, I I think what you're seeing now in today's society is way different from what happened before, whereas it's a global, I would say, action uh, for 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 social justice, which is before it was like stream very narrow. Now it's yeah. it's very wide and every race, every culture, uh, all age groups are involved in it. You know, for me, it's just like, let's keep elevating it and take action steps to build build wealth because we can do all the things and not have the, the funds to back it up and, and be back where we started. So, you know, push business ownership, push higher education, you know, push, you know, acquiring real estate, uh, push savings, bank account, growing, um, buying stocks, investing, all those things where you can actually make change and continue to grow uh, and, and 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 elevate yourself and elevate your family and those around you. I think that's a good starting point um, for the most basic person uh, who don't have a social media platform, who hasn't had a position of power, you know, who don't have as much influence as people who do, like affect your orbit. <laughs> For sure. I mean, in the wake of everything that sort of happened, we've seen CEOs or owners of businesses decide that they're going to step down and hope that their position gets filled with someone of color, right? Uh, Just because, I mean, if you look at these board of directors, uh, if you look at the NBA as as an example, over 50% of of the players are are black and there are no owners that are black. Um, the NFL maybe did a little bit better with their head coaching and kind of GM, but they had to implement a rule exactly where they were interviewing minority candidates because it wasn't happening. Exactly. But like, we need to get to a point where, like you talked about it earlier, we're past awareness. Like, we need to start seeing the change. Exactly. And there doesn't need to be rules like the Rooney Rule where we're interviewing minorities. That should just be a given. Exactly. That the best person is picked for the job, whereas more often than not, we don't see that. We very rarely see that in sports. I mean, you don't see it in hockey, although if you make the argument, not many, very many people are going to expect that, as bad as that sounds. That's just, it's just a reality to some. Reality. But, I mean, if there's ever going to be a black owner, it's got to first come in the NBA or the NFL. And I think that Adam Silver... Is pro is, has been like a great leader in, in in representing their sport and understanding that he really needs to engage his players and understand what's going on because his sport is, you know, a majority of black athletes yeah. and you know it it can lead to big problems if you don't listen. Roger Goodell's kind of now getting it a little bit maybe, but I mean he better than it was before. <laughs> Yeah, but again, like how genuine is it, right? Like that's that's always going to be the argument is how genuine is some some of his decision making now? Is it just that he's being pressured because he really fell on the wrong side of this police brutality and protest? But um, even if even if it's a, a negative, you know, I mean, motivation, 
that's causing positive outcome, <laughs> yeah, we still celebrate it because you know, just like it's like not going. You want to go to the gym, you want to get in shape, right? But yeah, get in your car to get there, like that's the tough part. So sometimes yeah. you know, but you get into the gym. Once you get to the gym, you're like, this is not so bad. Like I enjoyed, it. yeah. So you know, I think psychologically, Roger Roger Goodell, if he keeps doing the right things. Is he's going to see the positive result, which is going to now make it genuine. Right. So some people just have to be pushed in the right direction. And I'm hoping that he continues to be pushed in the right direction. Well, there's definitely going to be a lot of people holding him accountable. And I think rightfully yeah. so. It'll be very interesting with the next, you know, 12 to 18 months for the NFL and the NBA and, and all of these major sports leagues really to see it. Once the season finishes, what are they going to do? Exactly. Um, because this is not obviously an issue that is going to go away. This is an issue that needs to continue to be in the mainstream and the spotlight and changes need to be made. And we're going to hopefully see some of these commissioners and leagues be held accountable more so than they've, they've ever been before. hundred percent. And if they're in doubt, follow Adam Silva. <laughs> that, that, that's right. I mean, 100% he's, he's been incredible. He's been when it, whether it was COVID or or social justice issues, he's uh, he's looking to be on the right side of what is going on. Yeah, he's a human um, being first. Yeah, right. look no further than Do uh, Donald Sterling, right? Exactly. What a hell of a way to start your exactly. career as a as a commissioner. Exactly. Um, listen, Coach, it has been fantastic. It is uh, been great talking to you. I think there's way more that we can cover and hopefully you, you know you'll come back and, and we could talk a little bit more sure. um about this this was a lot of fun i appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule to do this no i appreciate you having me on julian it was great um it's finally like it's been a while as i said to you that somebody's like looked into all the dimensions of my life and try to, to to spend the time and put them all together so i just appreciate that effort i'm have nothing but gratitude for the time and you know the conversation and uh, i hope to do it again sometime for sure for uh jay holness and julian ortiz your host of the big old podcast thank you for watching and listening